You may be seated. I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. As you recall, last week Paul instructed us on what life looks like as the justified. That is the Christian. And Paul is continuing this instruction in our passage this evening. So please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. The Apostle Paul says this, Not that I've already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus had made me, has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. If anything, you think otherwise. God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Thus ends the reading of God's profitable word. May he write his word upon our hearts this evening. Well, this last week, I was helping my wife, Mackenzie, who is a middle school English teacher, correct some grammar worksheets. And the few worksheets that I was correcting, I noticed that these students were getting the same question wrong. They didn't know what a predicate was. I turned to Mackenzie, you know, were you, did you teach them what a predicate is? And she assured me that she taught them what a predicate was. But this, I think, illustrates a point that we all can probably relate to at one time when we were students, where maybe we failed to pay attention in class or take good notes or study like we should have. And what happens is we misconstrue what was taught to us in class and we end up in error. If you recall from last week, Paul has taught us, or taught us in, in those two verses, Philippians 3, 10 through 11, what our expectations should be in the Christian life, what life as the justified looks like. And now, as he's continuing on and penning this epistle, he realizes these people might misconstrue what I told them. I better give them some clarification. And there are really two errors that Paul is warning us, warning the Philippians, to look out for. The first is this idea of perfectionism. Thinking that being completely perfect is actually possible in this life. And this idea could emerge from misconstrual of this power of the resurrection, which Paul taught last, last week, that we know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Some may take this and think, oh, we have the power of Christ. Perfection must be possible in this life. Well, the other error that Paul wants the Philippians to be on guard for is laziness. And this also can arise because of a misconstrual of that resurrection power of Christ that he taught us in verse 10. Oh, we have the resurrection power of Christ. Why would we strive? Why would we actively try to put off sin if Christ's power is just going to do it anyways? Well, Paul is steering clear of both of these errors 
in verses 12 through 16 and teaching or clarifying, you could say, what the mature Christian life consists of. In fact, if you look at verse 15a, Paul says that those of us who are mature think this way. Paul says that mature Christians will think and act according to his example that he lays forth here in this passage. And Paul tells us in this passage that there are three things that we need to understand in order to grow in maturity. Now, these three things that he lays out before us are not the things that we merely need to give our intellectual assent to. I'm sure these three things are, are things we all are familiar with and we would assent to. But Paul's desire is that these truths would shape our entire lives, not just our thinking, but our affections and our way of life. In fact, you'll notice that these three things correspond with the structure of our catechism, guilt, grace, and gratitude. So boys and girls, if you want to be mature, learn your catechism. That would be a proper application of, of this passage. Well, the first step in growing in maturity is understanding that we are secure in Christ. We are secure in Christ. Please look with me in your Bibles at the second half of verse 12. Paul says this very thing. as He says, Christ Jesus has made us his own. This is really the, the anchor of our text, the very foundation of everything else he says. Christ Jesus has made not only Paul, but every believer his own. Well, how did Christ do this? We don't have to look even outside of the book of Philippians to answer this question. If you remember Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Paul explicitly told us how Christ has made us his own. We saw in that passage, this passage of Christ's humiliation and suffering, where he came to this earth, he lived, he suffered, he died. And then because of his perfect work, he rose again from the dead and was exalted at the right hand of God. Did he do this for those who loved him? No, he did though this for those who hated him. Paul says it in Romans 4 that Christ died for the righteous. No, he died for the ungodly, the wicked. So we see that Christ is the one who took the initiative to bring salvation into our hearts and lives. We didn't take that first step. Christ did. He's the one who pursued us and made us his own. I would imagine that when Paul was penning these words, he was likely thinking of his own conversion. How Christ made him his own. If you recall the life of Paul that we read about in the book of Acts, he was a great persecutor of the church of Christ. He, he hated Christ. He hated the church. Uh, we see him giving um, legitimacy to Stephen Stoning in Acts chapter 7. He endorsed this, as well as many other persecutions. In fact, I would imagine in his mind, he thought of himself as the very last person who would convert, convert to Christianity. Yet what happens a few chapters later in the book of Acts? Well, Christ makes the Apostle Paul his own. He gives him a new heart. He takes the blinders off his eyes and gives him a whole new trajectory for his life. 
Now, did you know that this is everyone's story? This is your story this evening if you're trusting in Christ? Now, of course, we don't have the uh, radical nature. Our, our conversions aren't as radical as the Apostle Paul. In fact, many of our conversions are probably quite ordinary. Some of us here may not even remember a day apart from Christ. Yet what happened to Paul happened to us. We all were conceived and born into sin. We all were by nature haters of righteousness until Christ made us his own. Until he took that initiative to bring us out of a miserable plight. And this salvation is secure. That's what Paul wants us to know. Now, if you think of all the things in your life right now that bring you security, it might be your job, your income, your house, your family, this country. So you consider these things. These things are all inherently insecure. I think if anything... If, if this past year has taught us anything, it would probably be, be this point. The inherent insecurity of some of the most secure and seemingly stable things in life can be taken away but a moment's notice. But what is the only thing in your life that is secure, that cannot be taken away, no matter what? What's your union with Christ? It's this salvation that has been granted to you by a sovereign God. Jesus says that no one can snatch you from his hand. He's the one that guarantees that nothing, the world, the sin, the, the flesh, the devil, nothing can break this union that he has with you. Think of the first question and answer of our, of our catechism. That you're not your own. You belong body and soul, life and death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that bond is unbreakable. That bond is unbreakable. This should bring us great comfort, especially during uh, this, this time in you know, our nation's history. It should remind us all the more to grab hold of our salvation in Christ. In fact, this is what Paul says. He says that we are to hold fast to this truth. If you look with me in your Bibles at the beginning of verse 16, Paul says, Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, what is it that we've attained? We haven't attained perfection, the resurrection of the body. We can't say that. What we've attained is this relationship with Christ, this salvation, this justification that he got done, he's just got done explaining in chapter 3. Well, how do we hold fast then to this salvation? Well, one way in which we hold fast is by hearing and being reminded of this truth repeatedly. And this begins each Lord's Day as we hear once again the good news of the gospel in the declaration of pardon. We just got done doing that uh, a few moments ago. You know, someone may wonder, well, why do these reform people have such a ritualistic service? You know, we do the same things each week. And we don't do these routines, these rituals, for their own sake. Rather, we do them because routines and rituals are good. In fact, imagine taking away all the rituals and routines in your everyday life. 
It would be chaos. Routines and rituals are good because they create habits. And habits are what shape us. They shape us in our everyday, ordinary life. But they also shape us in our spiritual life. And this habit of hearing each Lord's Day who we are in Christ, as we're called out of this world and told once again that we are righteous in the sight of God because of Christ and our sins have been taken away because of him. This habit is meant to shape us, not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. As we're reminded that each day we need to bring ourselves to the foot of the cross and remind ourselves who we are fundamentally. Part of the reason why we need these reminders is because the gospel is not natural to us. The law is written on our hearts. That's why our consciences can accuse us. The law is written on our hearts. To do this and you shall live. The gospel is so foreign and unnatural to us. That's why we need it preached and spoken to us continually to remind ourselves who we are. Our covenant children need this habit as well. In fact, a lot of, of growing up, the process of growing up, is a process of searching for an identity. And when kids um, get off the path, as it were, it's because oftentimes they have misplaced identities. So they need to be taught this habit, which begins on the Lord's Day, that first and foremost, they're a member of Christ. They belong not to themselves or anything else, but first and foremost, they belong to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So, boys and girls, the most important thing about you is that you are a member of Christ. It's not about your intellect, how well you do in sports, or how many friends you have, or who your mom or dad is. It's that you are a member for Lord Jesus Christ. When we hold fast to this reality of our security in Christ, and we grow. We grow in our understanding of it, both intellectually and experientially. And yes, we do need to grow in our intellectual understanding of, of the gospel, of what Christ has done to make us his own. And far too many people today have really a one-sided view of the gospel, that Christ made us his own only by dying for us. And that's important, that's true. But he also lived 30-plus years for us, too. To provide that righteousness which we cannot provide on our own. However, it's one thing to grasp this intellectually. It's another thing to understand this experientially. You know, Monday through Saturday as we go through our ordinary lives and, and deal with ongoing sin. We all can grow more and more in resting in this truth. When we feel anxious, depressed, stuck in sin, spiritually dry or dead. Oftentimes we, we can think, maybe not intellectually, but experientially, that there are more conditions to the salvation than faith alone. As if we need to have a certain emotional experience or a certain level of holiness for this security to be truly secure. But Christ says, come. Come if you feel anxious. Come if you feel depressed. Come if you feel stuck in sin. Come if you feel spiritually destitute, that's it, come. And he promises that he will give you rest. 
Therefore, the path to maturity is recognizing that our fundamental unconscious view of who we are needs to be that we are righteous in Christ. We've been forgiven in Christ. And this is how we need to think of ourselves. Well, because Paul is secure in Christ, he's actually able to acknowledge and deal with the imperfections of his life. So this leads us to the second thing that we need to know in order to grow in maturity, which is that we are sinners. We are sinners. Even as Christians, we continue to be sinners. Paul says this very thing in verse 12a, or the beginning of verse 12, I should say, as he declares, Not that I have already attained this, or am already perfect. And again, this this that he's referring to is the resurrection of the body, the last day, our glorification. It's referring to that day that we're all looking forward to when we will be free of sin. We will have bodies that are like the bodies of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see Christ face to face. Paul continues in this vein in verse 13, and he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He recognizes he's not perfect. Zachary's our catechism. Question answer 114. That even the holiest of men, which I would imagine the Apostle Paul would fit that category, even the holiest of men have only a small beginnings of perfect obedience to the law of God. This reality is true of us. Although we are secure in Christ, we still deal with ongoing sin. This is the great tension that we live in in this age. We are sinners, yet we are saints. We're righteous in Christ, yet we're very unrighteous in ourselves. In fact, Paul further elaborates on his own ongoing sin, which is quite remarkable in Romans chapter 7. He says, For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am. It's the Apostle Paul speaking. Ongoing sin is a reality in the Christian life. And we can see from the context of this book, even the, the few chapters we've already considered, that he was not expecting perfection for the Philippians. The Philippians are struggling with a lot of things. We, we heard repeated exhortations to humility, uh, church unity. We considered the... Now, Timothy, who was genuinely concerned for the Philippians' welfare, implying that there were people who were really struggling to care and be concerned for others in the Church of Christ. I recognize that we deal with ongoing sin. And this book has revealed our sin as well. We struggle in these very same areas that the Philippians struggled with. So we are indeed sinners. However, Paul is not, again, just wanting us to check the mark intellectually and say, yep, I know I'm a sinner, I'm mature. He wants us to grow in a deeper understanding, understanding that affects, again, our, our way of life and shapes us. What does this understanding, this understanding that's meant to shape us in a more holistic sense, what does this look like? I believe in Paul's mind, you know, the path to maturity is a path in which we see our sin for what it is. Namely, it's sin against the God of the universe. As I previously mentioned in our reading of the law, how often we are blind to our own hearts and to our own sins. 
we think, oh, our sin is really just a speck. Everyone else has the law. But we may affirm total depravity because of all those other sinners around us. You know, they testify to total depravity very well. Us, on the other hand, you have to look a little bit more intensely to find it. That's how we can think of ourselves. So we need to recognize the gravity of our sin. Even the sins of our heart. They're sins, they're transgressions of God's law committed against God himself. And this can sometimes look like renaming our sins with softer language. Such as, it's really not anger, it's just frustration. Or, you know, it's not gossiping, it's just processing the actions of others. It's not really unbelief in God as my faithful father, it's, it's just a little bit of grumbling. And we need to recognize our sin, our violation of God's law, committed against God himself. Therefore, this should lead us to a penitent heart, a heart that's quick to confess our sins before our Father, before one another. Again, very closely connected to this, the path of maturity not only looks like seeing the gravity of our sin, but the sinfulness of our hearts, the the amount of our sin that we perform. You know, there was a, there's a saying that says, the more holy you become, the more aware you are of your sin. According to this passage, I think you could say, the more spiritually mature you become, the more aware we are of our sin. So do you feel this? Do you feel that even in your best days, you have a small beginning of obedience? And does this make you long for the new creation? Because that's a day when you will be rid of sin. Oftentimes, think of the new creation, we have new bodies, no suffering. Do you think of it in the terms of, it will be impossible to sin. We'll be completely rid of all of our sinful patterns and, patterns and inclinations. We also are on a path to maturity when our recognition of our sin leads us to a place of humility and dependence before God. As we saw last week, it's, it's really in those places of weakness that we see God's resurrection power manifest itself in a big way. Therefore, our sin should lead us all the more to depend upon the Spirit of God. And I love how the, the first uh, sentence of our catechism's understanding of the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer says that since we are so weak in ourselves that we cannot stand even for a moment, Oh, that should be the first cry of our hearts when we wake up each morning. In ourselves, it would be scary to see what we're capable of, how much we need the Spirit to work in our hearts and lives. Well, how do we grow in this, this knowledge, this understanding of our sinfulness? Again, I think it, it, it begins on the Lord's Day. It's another reason why, in our liturgy, we have a portion set aside to hear God's law anew. To remind us of what we are required to do and to remind us of our sin. We're able to see ourselves in a mirror, as it were, through the law of God. And this is meant to shape us, not just in the Lord's way throughout our week. As we are routinely examining ourselves and confessing our sin. Therefore, there's a, a great relationship between this point and our first point. The more we see our sins, the more 
our knowledge and understanding of our security in Christ should grow because we see how incapable we are of accomplishing salvation on our own behalf. Well, recognition that we are secure in Christ, that we continue to be sinners in this life, should ultimately lead us to strive for holiness. It's my third and final point, that we are to call to strive. We are called to strive. Please look with me in your Bibles in the second half of verse 12, where Paul says that he presses on to make it his own. Then verse 14, he continues that he presses on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's striving for holiness, this day in which he'll be fully conformed to Christ. He knows that this will only be completed on the last day. And he's not a perfectionist. However, he is striving to, to uh, uh, to bring about small beginnings in this obedience. Now it's very important to realize the motivation for this, this Christian life of striving, of pursuing a life of holiness. And Paul makes this motivation explicit. Again, if you look at verse 12, Paul says, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He recognizes that it's our security and salvation in Christ there's the foundation to our striving. That's the only sure foundation. In fact, I think there's a lot of kind of common, ordinary analogies to this, especially when you think of the family. There's lots of studies that have shown that the breakage of, of the traditional family structure has, lead to me, has led to many consequences, negative consequences, for, for children. While those kids who are able to grow up in a secure family, where they're secure of their parents' love. So you show that they go on to lead industrious, honest, prudent, peaceful, virtuous lives. Again, in a similar way, we need to begin our Christian life of striving on the sure foundation of our security in the gospel. Otherwise, if we are starting on any other foundation, we, we will not achieve our desired outcome. That is obedience. Well, what does this striving look like? You know, Paul calls this to strive, press on. What does, what does this look like? Well, first, it involves a struggle. Paul is using overt athletic imagery here. Pressing on, striving. He has in mind a runner who is struggling through pain, fatigue, discomfort to reach that finish line, the prize his eye is set upon. So we need to recognize that the striving is going to be a struggle. It's going to be a struggle. But this striving also consists of having a short memory. We see this in verse 13 that Paul says that we need to forget what lies behind. Here Paul's likely referring to past accomplishments and failures. I would imagine that this was a, a, a very... Um, Sure reality in the Apostle Paul's, Paul's mind. Think of the failures that the, I'm sure the devil was trying to bring up in his own mind and conscience routine. I mean, he called himself the worst of sinners. He persecuted the church, killed Christians. You can you imagine the guilt 
that the devil would want to stir up in his heart, to reminisce on those things that lay in the path. But also accomplishments. The Apostle Paul did a lot of good for the Church of Christ. In fact, he, in, in some extraordinary ways, fulfilled Christ's mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Imagine the devil also was wanting to bring to mind past accomplishments, to create this attitude of pride. And that's oftentimes what happens, isn't it? When the evil one brings to mind the things that, that lie in our past, whether there be failures or accomplishments. We go on the seesaw between pride and despair, don't we? Paul's saying, have a short memory. Forget the things that lie behind it. Well, striving and pressing on also requires effort. It requires effort. Your sanctification, this work of being renewed in the image of God, is a work of God alone. Paul's very clear about that. Not only in this book, but throughout his epistles. Yet we know that God only sanctifies those people within the context of striving. Striving is the context in which God does his work in our lives. We all have our own distinct struggles, weaknesses, inclinations, uh, patterns of sin that we are called to fight against. It's very easy for us to be content with, with those patterns. If you were called to intentionally fight, to put effort into putting off those sinful patterns. The reason why putting off sinful patterns are difficult and they take effort is because they're vices, because they're habits. Just like any habit in, in your life is difficult to break, it's hard to act contrary to patterns, to habits. But Paul's calling us to, to do that, to put effort into creating these new routines, habits of righteousness. May we never forget, again, may we never forget that this work of sanctification wholly contributed to the Spirit of God in our lives. We can take no credit for the work of righteousness that is produced in our life. It's a work of the Spirit alone. But the Spirit uses means. Right? He uses means to accomplish his, his, his work in our life. Again, to, to use this analogy that Paul is using with, with a runner. Just like when a, a marathon runner is, is running a marathon, there's, there's every a mile or two, there's these stations, these refueling stations, to get water, Gatorade, energy gels, replenish, hydrate, in a similar way, we have refueling stations in the Christian life, the means of grace, the Lord's Day, where we come to hear the Word, to, take the, to partake of the sacraments, and secondarily, to fellowship with believers, to pray. And these are the places where the Spirit promises to do this extraordinary work of renewal in our lives. So, brothers and sisters, as we seek to grow in maturity, let us pay careful attention to these words of Paul that we are indeed secure in Christ. We continue to be sinners and we're called to strive. And if we do this, we indeed will steer clear of error. Let us pray. O Lord, may you continue to grow us in grace as we press on towards the goal of perfection which awaits us on the other side of this pilgrimage. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the only way in which we can truly grow and mature.